six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Happy noon hour. This is WORTFM's A Public Affair. I'm your host, Bert Zipperer. And it is Thursday, I'm sorry, it is Monday, June 27th, 2023, 2022. Uh, although it, when you see what's happening with the Supreme Court in the last week, it kind of feels like it should be 1822 or something like that, right? Um, we have with us today an amazing professor of history, Dr. Beatrice Loftus McKenzie, emeritus professor at Beloit College, who has written a book that I th- published by the University of Wisconsin Press, the, the Wongs of Beloit, Wisconsin. A beautiful, beautiful, amazing book about the immigration of a Chinese family, Charles and Yishi Wong, in the early 1920s to Beloit, Wisconsin, and their family story. In the last week, we have certainly um, witnessed an assault on rights, and there's an umbrella of rights, whether those are immigrant rights, racial rights, LGBTQ plus rights, reproductive health care rights, and those are all of one fabric. This story fits in that umbrella of rights, rights denied, and rights um, defended. So Dr. McKenzie, welcome to WORT. Thank you. Hi, Bert. It's good. Uh, and hello to listeners. It's my pleasure to be here with you. This, it's so good to have you. Um, we were talking on Friday about this umbrella of rights, and you made some really eloquent statements. Um, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but your story fits within that panoply of uh, U.S. history of people um, under assault in some ways. Uh, the Chinese Americans, obviously with the Chinese Exclusion Act of the 1880s, the Immigration Act of 1924, which expanded that um, racist restriction, um, and the Wong family. Talk, can you talk about that for a second? Sure, I'd be glad to. And um, I think as we talked about on Friday just briefly, and as I'm sure our listeners are aware, you know, this is a really important time to tell this story and an important time at, at several levels. Um, the struggle for civil rights continues you know, at the federal level with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the upcoming decisions about affirmative action that we're expecting any day. At the state level where voting rights are under attack uh, and contested, you know, nowhere more than in Wisconsin, but elsewhere as well. And, and also at the local level in a number of attacks against Asian Americans, these attacks are of course hate crimes that serve to terrorize especially a vulnerable elderly population. And this climate of hate toward Asian Americans is part of this, what you called an umbrella of rights. It's part of the dismantling of rights or uh, the precarity of rights uh, in the present era. People are feeling uh, free to strike out against Asian Americans because of some of the statements and some of the policies uh, at the national level. And in particular, in the Chinese American community, we have, um, in the past week, 
or 10 days uh, done a, a remembrance and recommemoration of uh, uh, Vincent Chin's murder in Detroit. That was a major event in Detroit highlighting that 1982 uh, crime and the coming together of people demanding justice and continuing to do so. And then we could go on and on from that. Um, you have written a story about one particular family. And talk about that family, please. And, and oh, before you go on, I just want to invite listeners to call in at 608-256-2001, extension 9. And that includes members of the Wong family. So uh, Mr. Wong and uh, uh, Mary and Harry and Jim, I, I, I just want to say we would love to have you um, join us. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, so this is a, a biography, in a sense, of a single family. Um, the book tells a story of this immigrant family that came to Wisconsin in the 1920s, to Beloit, Wisconsin, right on the Illinois border, an industrial town uh, that sort of hit its heyday, uh, certainly after World War II, but between World War I and 1955. Um, they came, as many immigrants do, to seek a better life for themselves and for their children. Um, and so we follow the uh, difficulties that the parents faced individually and then uh, as a couple when they immigrated. The father, Charles Wong, uh, came to the U.S. in 1909 uh, and worked in, likely in uh, Utah and in California for several years. He went back to China and got married to Yi Shi. And Yi Shi probably would have stayed with Charles's family in Mengdi village in Guangdong province for the rest of her life, except that uh, the area was uh, very politically unstable uh, in the 1920s. And he decided, Charles decided to bring Yi Shi here in 1923. So the book tells about that, about their voyage, about how they, you know, how Beloit was when they landed, about the restaurant and, and company that they started. And then also it goes into the lives of their children, how their children fared in this, um, in this town. And uh, uh, it sort of ends with a return to Mengdi by their um, youngest daughter, uh, Mary Wong Palmer, who I hope is listening in and and may call in. I hope so too. And I want to make a correction. Uh, Ms. Fong Schultz um, is one of the surviving uh, children of Yi Shi and Charles, as well as Harry Wong and Mary Wong Palmer. So all three of you, we would welcome you to call in or anyone else at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, so why Beloit? And talk about the Chinese community of Beloit in 1920. Sure. So, um, well, you already mentioned uh, Chinese exclusion. So there was a period of time in U.S. history that uh, Chinese were nearly all prohibited from immigrating to the U.S. Uh, between 1882 and 1943, there was an exception for the children of American citizens and uh, Charles Wong came as the son of an American citizen to the U.S. And as I mentioned, worked in, you know, in areas of the West uh, for several years. 
Well, in Chicago, after the 1893 uh, exhibition, where there was a uh, Chinese pavilion and a tea house, um, the community, the Chinese community in Chicago welcomed their brethren who were facing uh, extreme racism and hostility in the West. And we think that uh, Charles came to Chicago for several years before he um, you know, moved to Beloit, Wisconsin in 1920 to start uh, a restaurant that became known as the Chop House. With, with his uncle, um, right? Go ahead, sorry? With, with, with his uncle, right? With, uh, with several of his uncles and cousins, yes. There were four owners at the beginning, right? And uh, Beloit, Wisconsin was thriving, as I mentioned. This was uh, an industrial powerhouse and uh, making a lot of sales nationally and internationally in, uh, in the World War I and post-World War I era. So they did extremely well in the 1920s. Um, and as I said, in Guangdong, there was political instability. And so Yi Shi came in 1923 which must have improved Charles's life dramatically, right? He went from living mm -hmm. with a bunch of young men uh, to, into his own home, which he purchased, where he lived with his wife. And then they started their family there. Their first son was born a year later uh, at the Beloit Hospital. How large was the Chinese community of Beloit at that time? Very small. Uh, the Wongs who owned the restaurant were were virtually the only Chinese in town. And the, uh, the Wong family was sort of known uh, as the only Chinese family in town, in, in Beloit. There were, I mean, we have seen some evidence as we looked at uh, uh, yearbooks and such, we have seen evidence of other Chinese students every once in a while at Beloit Memorial High School, but to, uh, I don't know, public memory, the purposes of public memory, they were the only family here. You are listening to Dr. Beatrice Loftus-McKenzie, Emeritus Professor at Beloit College, speaking on her new book, The Wongs of Beloit, Wisconsin. And we invite you listeners to join the conversation, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, so call and we'd love to have you here. Um, Dr. McKenzie, um, so Charles... Let's go back prior to Charles. How does Charles get in the country? The, the, the story of uh, Wong Ben-Yuk and Wong Doucette are, and how Wong Doucette follows is really compelling to me, especially in the era of Chinese exclusion. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, so it's, it's really complicated, and it was difficult to untangle uh, this story. Um, and I would say... We only untangled it. And whenever I say we, I'm talking about myself and Mary Wong Palmer. Mary Wong Palmer did most of the research for this book and brought me into the project, uh, you know, after she had been studying this history for, for decades. Um, but we had the sources that are at the National Archives, which kept records, really strict records on Chinese immigrants and other immigrants. And then we had uh, a number of interviews done with people um, in the past and in the present by Mary, by other family members, and then by myself. And uh, in the transcribing of a, a cassette that was done of an interview of a, an uncle of Mary's in uh, 1982, when we transcribed it, 
he explained that he that he read Chinese, that he was looking at the papers of his father and explained that his father, who was Doucet, Wang Doucet, had actually taken the place of his brother, who was Ben Yuk, uh, uh, after Ben Yuk died of the flu when he was back in China. So Charles was sent by the family first. His uncle, um, Wong Benyuk was in the U.S., but I don't, there's no evidence that they worked together or met or any of that. Um, and after uh, his uncle died back in China, then his father, who was a medical doctor, I mean, this is the kind of surprising element of this story is that one of the, is that the uncle was a cook and the father was a medical doctor. But the, the father, the medical doctor, came in 1912, three years after his son Charles came. Uh, and immigration officials noted at the time that he didn't look anything like his photo in the, in, in the, in the records. And I actually um, you know, looked into this and argued uh, before the American Political Science Association uh, several years ago that they the immigration officials, U.S. immigration, actually accepted him as a replacement for his brother because he was of a higher social class than his brother. He was literate in both English and Chinese, and he said he was the brother. And they, you know, looked at the photos and said, you know, must have said to themselves, well, we don't know why, but why he doesn't look like his old photo. But he actually qualifies for immigration because he's not a laborer. So he was in the group of, uh, you know, elite traders uh, and workers and scholars who were actually allowed to immigrate. So that's how Charles's father immigrated. He lived in Chicago, worked uh, as an herbal doctor and uh, his, his grandchildren, three of whom are probably on this call, uh, uh, visited with him regularly when they were children. So. It, this is something that makes this story really interesting, interesting and different than a than a sort of academic history. Is that beyond the paper sources that the National Archives have, we also have the sources of the family memory of the you know the children that remember their grandfather. There's no question that was not his. <laughs> that grandfather was not his brother. He was their you know biological grandfather that they remember well. And. Listeners, you're listening to Dr. Beatrice Loftus-McKenzie speaking of her book regarding the Wong family of Beloit, Wisconsin, published by University of Wisconsin Press. And we invite you to call in 608-256-2001, extension 9. Dr. McKenzie, I'm struck by one detail, that the Chinese Exclusion Act in, 19, in 1882 puts up a hellacious racist barrier and six years later, this 13-year-old Ben Yuk arrives on a ship and says, I know this one man in uh, Wong Song, I believe. Yes. Who comes down and says, oh yeah, he was, he's a citizen. Talk, talk about that. And, and because of that, everything else follows. Could you talk about that briefly? This is before Angel Island. This, you know, the the, what what was that like? Yeah. Um, so, 
I guess I should talk first about the family in China and why they sent sons forth. So uh, China in the south was becoming overpopulated and there was not enough land for uh, people to, uh, you know, to continue to spread out for the sons to continue to to thrive. And so um, families did uh, had a strategy where they sent sons to other regions sometimes within China, sometimes in, in, in the neighborhood, uh, in other countries nearby, and sometimes to the U.S. or Canada or Latin America, um, to learn a trade and either continue to practice it outside or to come back and practice it in, in the village. And so um, uh, the family, the Wang family in uh, Mengdi village sent... Ben Yuk to the U.S. when he was only 13 years old, and that was a typical age. And he learned the trade of cooking and stayed in the U.S. Uh, and worked as a cook uh, for, you know, for several years. But you asked about his initial entry. So people like Ben Yuk were excluded by 1888. So uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act had passed in 1882, and um, and there was an effort to keep Chinese laborers out, and it would be exactly somebody like Ben Yuk that would uh, that was the target of this effort. Um, I am sure he didn't know. I'm sure he didn't know that there was a law. I'm sure he what he knew was his family told him to go to the U.S. and learn to be a cook. And um, and however, when he arrived, there was a crackdown on the Chinese Exclusion Act, and. Uh, all of the uh, Chinese coming and all of the Chinese coming on his ship needed to have a certificate that showed that they had they were permanent residents of the United States. It was called a Canton certificate, and uh, he didn't have one. And another young man that traveled with him didn't have one, and and many others didn't. Um, so when they in the initial screening, they asked him, you know what are you doing coming to the U.S.? And he said, well, the person who can tell you about me, about me is Wong Song. And what I said in the book is that must have predisposed officials to, you know, to accept him. They must have known Wong Song. He must have been uh, an acceptable witness. Um, and, and it seems like from the record, the uh, immigration service was expecting Wong Song to say, this man is a permanent, uh, a legal permanent resident. But what he testified to um, was that uh, was that Ben Yuk had been born in the U.S. and so that was accepted and uh, uh, and then you know so then Ben Yuk is recognized as a U.S. citizen. The stakes are high indeed uh, because in the time in the six months uh, that it took to investigate his case, um, hundreds of men were detained uh, from this and other ships. Um, and they were detained either on the ship or in a warehouse uh, in San Francisco. Um, and one man, one young man who was on his ship, they called him a boy in the uh, in the newspaper account, uh, actually committed suicide when when he wasn't accepted to come into the U.S. Um, so you know, stakes were extremely high. We've got photos of Ben Yuk the passport photo before he left China and then the photo after six months of detention. And, you know, you see a boy who is skinny and, uh, you know, disheveled, uh, uh, you know, has not been 
regularly bathing. And we can just imagine how traumatic a six-month period that must have been for him. And, and I'm struck because there are a lot of 13-year-olds trying to cross the southern border into the United States for exactly the same reasons, to better their lives, to send money home, to benefit their families. And, and thank you so much for pointing that out. I really appreciate that. That's right. Yeah, this is not the first time that children have tried to cross the U.S. border. And and a lot of people in the United States were sending a lot of money back and traveling back and forth, which I don't think most people are familiar with. I don't think I was familiar enough with the, 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 the traveling back and forth. Could you talk about what was typically happening quite often? Yeah, so I mentioned that it was... Uh, typical uh, in Guangdong for the families to send their sons elsewhere to pick up a trade and either practice it outside or come back and practice it uh, uh, locally. But they also uh, normally did not bring their family with them. They left their family at home, their wives and children at home in the village um, to to venerate their ancestors, to uh, take care of their parents, to raise their children. So it was kind of a, a, a Chinese preference. And then it dovetailed with what became American law. And that was uh, an act passed in 1875, the Page Act, which prevented the um, entry of, uh, of certain people to the US, including prostitutes. So because so many Chinese men came to the US, prostitution developed. Uh, where some Chinese women and women of other uh, backgrounds were, you know, prostitutes. And then unfortunately, Chinese women who came after that were assumed or presumed uh, to be prostitutes and, you know, questioned uh, in a humiliating fashion. So one of the things I talked about in the book was that, um, U.S. immigration officials knew that if uh, a Chinese woman had bound feet, she was likely to be uh, of the elite class. So she would be, uh, it would be easier for her to enter. She wouldn't be presumed to be a laborer. She wouldn't be presumed to be a prostitute. And, um, and Yi Shi, who came in 1923, the mother of this family in Beloit, um, did not have bound feet. And so it was uh, worrisome for Charles to bring her because would she be detained? Would she be, you know, questioned? And so he purchased a first class ticket uh, on a ship and brought her uh, through Seattle. And she was not detained. She was not questioned because there was this assumption about class that if you were of a certain class, you were not seeking to break break laws. There were, in fact, different laws in this case, right, for for elite Chinese and for laborers. There was a detail in the story about if a person is born of a U.S. citizen father outside this country versus if you're born of a U.S. citizen mother outside of this country. And that surprised me, the fact that you would be allowed in because of your father, but your mother didn't count. Yes, and that didn't, that didn't change until uh, the 1920s. So it was a long-established protected right for citizen fathers to be able to um, transmit citizenship to their children born overseas. And it was uh, not recognized for the children of citizen mothers, of U.S. citizen mothers. 
Now that shifted between 1920 and, and the 1940s when uh, it became much easier for women to transmit their citizenship uh, to children. But back at this period that we're talking about, it was, it was easier for men. It was not uncontested. I mean, Chinese American birthright citizenship rights were tenuous. They were, they were precarious due to race-based discrimination. There was an assumption that the person presenting themselves as a citizen was lying. They were, they were presumed uh, fraudulent until, you know, until the evidence was shown that they, that it, that, that they were citizens. This and that's a... something that was very different than people claiming, than white people claiming to be uh, citizens, you know, entering at another location or even entering at the same locations. There's even a Supreme Court case in 1898, the Wong Kim Ark case. Yes. Yeah. So the Wong Kim Ark case is the basis for U.S. birthright citizenship policy. Um, and that is uh, Wong Kim Ark, uh, a child born to uh, a Chinese couple living in San Francisco in 1870, was denied entry and appealed. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, the, the, the justices said, if he doesn't, if he's not a citizen, he's born in San Francisco. We've got, you know, we've got evidence that shown he was born in San Francisco. And if he's not a citizen, that calls into question the births of millions of uh, of European immigrants whose whose parents are not U.S. citizens or who are uh, naturalized U.S. citizens. And so, it's absolutely, you know, foundational law uh, that birthright citizenship is uh, regardless of race. Absolutely. Um, we are listening and talking with and having a great conversation with Dr. Beatrice Loftus McKenzie uh, of Beloit College regarding her book on the Wong family of Beloit, Wisconsin. Again, this is a community conversation. Call in at 608 256 2001. And uh, Ms. Schultz, Mr. Wong, Ms. Palmer, we'd love to have you join us. Um, it would be an honor, to be really honest. Let's shift gears, Dr. McKenzie to um, Yishi and Charles have seven children and Charles is killed and Yishi has seven children ages 14 and under. Talk about that. What, what... Yeah, well, first let me, let me talk about uh, Charles's death. Um, I, I said that he was an owner of this restaurant in, in Beloit and he had a... a he had a problem with one of his employees, who was also a cousin, um, and that uh, that cousin, after an argument, uh, ran over to his uh, to his to his bedroom in a different building and grabbed a gun and came back and shot Charles dead in 1938. And as you said, um, Charles had seven children, ages one to fourteen. Um, Charles and Yi Shi, and Yi Shi spoke uh, next to no English and uh, didn't often leave the home, except she did have a nice community of other immigrant, first and second generation immigrants who lived on the same street as she did in Beloit. So she had friends. Um, but after his death, there was the question of, you know, how would they make ends meet? And should she go back to Hong Kong 
which uh, where where Charles and his uh, his uncle had purchased uh, several properties in the heyday of the 1920s when they were making such good money. Um, so she really thought long and hard about it because her family was saying, bring them back, bring them back to China. And, uh, and she just couldn't decide. She and Charles had decided to raise them in the U.S. and she felt like she ought to stay true to that, to that you know, promise that they had to each other. Of course, the children wanted to stay as well, uh, you know, as any eighth grader and, and down would, would want to if they were in, a, uh, in that situation. And so she first uh, sold uh, Charles's part of the, the Charles's interest in the restaurant. And she unfortunately felt taken advantage of by the other men uh, who were owners. And so um, she, you know, got some money for her part and, and that's what they lived on for a short time. But then basically the children had to go out and work. The oldest son, Gim, who was 14, started off taking over his father's place in the restaurant, and he had worked there in the kitchen before his father died. And then, you know, it just became too hard for that 14-year-old to go to, you know, ninth grade and also uh, be a part owner in this restaurant where he was in charge of the money, of bringing the the, the proceeds every day to the bank. Um so he, so that's when she sold and, you know, he got a job. The boys had paper routes. The girls did babysitting. They worked in, uh, in local businesses. Um, it's another place where we see a different treatment of Chinese Americans, a better treatment in a sense in the Midwest than in uh, California, because at the same time in California, uh, Chinese American girls were often in, uh, you know, working in households, babysitters, um, but also, you know, doing laundry and such and cleaning and not often working at, you know, the equivalent of Macy's or in a drugstore or something like that. And so these Wong kids did have, you know, pretty good jobs for high school kids uh, working, you know, as shop clerks, working as, you know, the soda jerk, working in a drugstore as, you know, some kind of assistant um, so in that sense, they were treated better than their counterparts in California. They brought home money and I mean, they gave every dime to their mother, uh, until they were in college when she started to give them some back. I was struck in 1938, in July of 1938, when Charles is killed, um, Mary, the baby is actually taken in by the neighbors to assist the family, and, and she lives with the neighbors for four months, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it's really amazing to think back that communities would have been that tight that uh, that the neighbors would have offered this. So Mary didn't find this out until, until one of her brothers died at his funeral. Two of the daughters of the family that took it, her in when her father was, was killed came up to her at the funeral and said, you know, do you remember us? And those two women, by the way, came to a presentation in at the Beloit Public Library wow. in, in April. They're still alive. They're still vibrant. Anyway, the Board family uh, heard Yishi crying. Apparently, she cried herself to sleep every night and, and, and wailed, right? Not just soft tears, but real grief. 
and they the whole neighborhood heard it the children heard it they, everybody was devastated um and uh mrs board offered to take mary and uh yeah kept her the other siblings thought maybe until christmas and mary's mother ye she went to visit mary every day so it wasn't like she didn't see her but yeah as a uh I can't remember the exact number of months, but maybe 14 month old, she was taken in by a neighbor and the, the, the girls, the daughters were, you know, 10 and 12 or something. And, you know, we're thrilled to have a, a baby around. Um, but it, it, I think it speaks to how close that community was and how good the relations were that he, she was able to establish with those neighbors. And as I say in the book, that happened during the depression. Yi Shi and Charles had a really great garden and they shared their produce and they shared food with neighbors, um, including the boards and others. So, I mean, it, it sounded like a wonderful neighborhood. It really does. There's, on the flip side, uh, you, t you go through the story of the seven children of Charles and Yi Shi and almost every single one of them has a love relationship which ends when the families uh, of their boyfriend or girlfriend get involved. Can you talk about that? That was sure. heartbreaking to me. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, the Wongs experienced racism, d direct, really explicit racism, I and mean, they were taunted. Um, and the amazing thing to me is I just have this little aside and then I'll go back sure. to uh, their their love lives. But the amazing thing to me is that each of the the uh, generations that I interviewed talked about being basically being bullied and taunted for being uh, Chinese American, including, you know, fourth generation descendants, including, you know, people who are in their 20s now um, and that and that taunting and bullying, you know, took place in the Midwest and it took place elsewhere, but more in the Midwest than, uh, than in California. In any case, um, other, other scholars have pointed out that Chinese were, you know, in a sense, more acceptable than other immigrants, than other immigrants of color in some ways until puberty. And then there was this concern that there would be racial mixing and I talked about um, miscegenation laws uh, that Wisconsin actually did not have one, but that existed in uh, most of the states prior to 1965, and where it was, you know, literally illegal for a Chinese person to marry a white person or uh, a black person to marry a, a white person or Chinese person. Uh, these miscegenation or anti-miscegenation laws were um, were prevalent. So there wasn't a law in Wisconsin, but um, when when Gim was dating someone at Beloit College, he attended Beloit College for one year, that uh, girl's father came from Chicago and, you know, one of the younger brothers, Harry, uh, described this incident because, of course, everybody was there for it, right? He, he knocked on the door, banged on the door, and uh, Harry said, you know, he had a big face, red with anger, 
and and told Gim in no uncertain terms he could not date his daughter. You know, humiliating Gim and and you know scaring everyone, um, and sort of teaching a lesson. Uh, and as you said, and and this is true, almost all, and and I can't think of the exception of the others, um, also experienced something similar where they thought they were going to marry someone. And then that person said, oh, gosh, I'm sorry. My parents oppose this, uh, this match. Um, and it's, it was in two cases, it was the justification was they didn't think it would be good. They, the white parents, didn't think it would be good for their grandchildren to be born in future to be uh, mixed race. And um, uh, so in one case, you know, the couple got married anyway. And, um, and well, there were other, there were other, you know, outcomes, but several of the, the siblings married white spouses and several of the siblings married Chinese and other Asian Americans. I, I just want to highlight, um, um, Fung Wong, when she's dating, I, I love the story, the strength that she has and the courage where her mother is not crazy about Al or Elwood Schultz. And she goes off to Illinois and elopes. And it's a beautiful story. It's a wonderful story. And lives nearby mom and they become very close and the and the grandchildren love being with grandma. The whole story is beautiful, but it starts with uh, Fung Wong Schultz's courage in, in being in love with Al and going off to Illinois to get elo to elope. Can you talk about that at all? I mean, that struck me as a beautiful story. Yeah. Um, so Yishi expected that all of her children would marry Chinese spouses, Chinese or Chinese-American spouses. And she thought it'd be super easy for the girls to find mates because there were so few Chinese women because of that, you know, I described that history of exclusion of Chinese women and choice by Chinese families to keep women at home. Um, so she thought it'd be really easy for the girls. And then she thought, well, and for the boys, she would just take them back to China, Hong Kong or Guangdong and find them a spouse. And, you know, and match them the way that she was matched with her husband. Um, and so, uh, you know, all of the children resisted that. I mean, they were American kids, right? And, and so this, this notion that you'd be matched or that you had to marry some certain person or kind of person seemed antiquated to them. So they didn't want to uh, necessarily. And um, in Fung's case, she had... She had dated and been rejected by a suitor in, in, from high school, a white suitor. And then she, you know, tried her mother's, she tried to please her mother by dating Chinese men, um, some of whom were from Hong Kong, you know, in, in the Chicago uh, Chinatown and some uh, uh, more northern Chinese who were studying at UW-Madison. And she just, you know, didn't, she didn't have enough in common with them culturally. So she wasn't comfortable with them. And my favorite story about that was the person that her brothers called Joe Blow 
uh, a man from, <laughs> from from Chicago who basically just talked all the time and they and they uh, you know were not impressed by him at all and she was not interested in him either so yeah she falls in love with this neighbor uh, someone from the next block up and um, you know her mother was horrified um, and they went off and eloped and her mother didn't speak to her uh, for several months. And because they were neighbors, when the first baby was born, Alan, you know, he was, you know, Grandma Wong came, came calling and uh, Fung talked about, you know, anytime our car was in the driveway, she'd come running over. Um, and so it was actually quite beautiful that, that Yi Shi was able to overcome her um, feelings, her, her prejudices toward uh, interracial marriage and, uh, and, and that Alan was, was uh, so loved. Alan and all of the other grandchildren was, were so loved by her. Um, so yeah, I, I, I interviewed maybe 12 of the grandchildren and to a one, they adored her. She loved them so much and she, uh, you know, cooked for them and she remembered everybody's preferences and cooked this, you know, the particular things for the particular grandchildren. She talked to them all the time, even though she didn't speak English very well and they didn't speak Chinese. Um, it just, she just sounded like a wonderful person, strong, but very, very deeply committed to family and to her children and grandchildren. It, it's a wonderful story. We're listening to Dr. Beatrice Loftus-McKenzie, who just wrote the book, The Wong Family of Beloit, Wisconsin, The Wongs of Beloit, Wisconsin. And we've got a few minutes here if you want to join us, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, so a couple of the other kids, I'm struck by Harry, who the brothers are like, hey, you list him as a black sheep and a risk taker, and he decides to go in a different direction, medical school. The brothers are like, well, we'll pay your way. And then he decides to go to medical school. And they're like, oh, well, we're kind of busy right now. We can't afford this anymore. <laughs> um, but he goes on into the medical field. Mary Wong Palmer becomes a teacher here in Madison, Franklin Elementary and Van Heys Elementary. Um, ends her career in Wauwatosa. Um, and gets a lot of credit for being the family historian. Fung Schultz, great stories. Um, and, and, so, and so on. Um, what, what lessons should we learn today from this history? I think one of the most important lessons, and it's recognized by um, Yi Shi's grandson, John Wong, who's still in, in Beloit and uh, you know, has been in a number of public service positions. Um, it, one of the lessons is that education is something no one can take from you. So you may face uh, ostracization, you may face racism, uh, uh, but if you can, you know, manage to get yourself a good education, you can overcome some of that. Um, obviously, the difficult part in that is overcoming, right? And, uh, and yet, John recognized that there are immigrants in Beloit now whose children face some of the odds that the Wongs faced uh, when they were when they were little, and so that's a takeaway, you know, education. Um, 
Another takeaway is that immigration history, U.S. immigration history is fraught with stories like this, with racism, with classism, um, but with people overcoming odds to, to make a life and to insist on remaining uh, and, and making a, uh, a future for their descendants. So I think that's really exciting and something that, you know, Beloit is interested in now is the number of Latino immigrants who have uh, moved to the Beloit area and are working in the industries that uh, immigrants have worked in, you know, through the years um, and raising families and uh, succeeding. If you, if you look at, you know, scholarship award winners in from uh, Beloit Memorial High School, you'll see that immigrants are really succeeding the way that the Wongs and other immigrants have in the past. Um, alongside Beloit population, so it's not like they're uh, displacing other uh, other winners, but um, but they are definitely succeeding. So that's a second um, lesson from the book: is well, gee, how important immigration is to the the success and survival of our communities, our cities, our industries. Um, I think maybe those are the two biggest lessons. But something that struck me was the whole issue of immigration, immigrant rights, and, and just how important it is for all of us. Many of whom, like myself, who my great-great-grandfather arrives as a six-month-old baby, um, probably in steerage on, some, on a sailing ship. Um, but how important it is for all of us to stand together um, much like the Beloit community stood, that neighborhood stood with uh, Yishi, and, but, but stand up for each other and stand up for the rights and to face down the attacks and the hatred and the racism that um, we certainly know exist. Yes, I can't agree more. I think that's definitely a lesson uh, of the book and really important for our time. I was, I was struck many years ago, there was a, a large uh, immigrant rights rally in Madison back in 2006. So this goes back a ways. I was working in the schools and a lot of us staff left the school that day and were part of this. And in talking with the Latino and Latina students the next day, there were a lot of non-Latino and Latina participants in this large rally. And they were shocked. They were like, Bert, did you see that? And I was like, yeah, what, did, what are you talking about? They're like, there were a lot of white people there. There were a lot of other people there. There were a lot of people that aren't Latino. And um, it meant the world to them. And I th I th that's one of my takeaways here is that we, we need to stand up and be there. Well, we definitely do. I mean, we need to stand up. We need to, we need to stand up against the terrorism that is now affecting immigrants oh. broadly and against uh, Asian Americans. And we need to stand up uh, and and protect and expand uh, immigrant rights. Uh, we need to be sure to vote um, in our midterm election and our next presidential election. Uh, we need to not only vote nationally, but we need to vote locally uh, and state in in statewide elections. So we need to look at the um, you know at all elections, not just the the ones with the president on on the ticket. Um, 
there, yeah, there's, there's so much to do, but we can do it. We have faced this before in our history and we can do it in future. Well said, well said. Thank you, Dr. McKenzie. Um, Dr. McKenzie, what's your favorite story in this book? Is, is there a favorite that we haven't touched on already? Hmm. I, gosh, I'm not quite ready for that one. Oh, I'm sorry, I would I'm sorry. Say that, no, no, it's fine. Um, I would say that uh, one of the stories that's most interesting that we haven't talked about yet is what the village that, you know, all of these various people came from, Meng Di, looked like uh, yes. when Mary Wong Palmer and her uh, husband and children and, and friends went back. Um, they went back in the, gosh, 2008 um, and uh, tried to find the village, which was, you know, difficult, complicated. Um, and when they got there, they tried to, you know, interview the oldest people in town um, and they found not a single Wong there still, although they found the right village. You know, it had uh, the buildings that the grandfather talked about in his immigration interviews and it had uh, some of the other markers, you know, the name, the name was the correct name. And it was verified by the Chinese government that that was the correct town. But there had been so much dislocation and political instability through the cultural revolution uh, in the Mao era that people who had any ability to leave, who had any contacts overseas, sought to leave um, and went to Hong Kong and to Canada, U.S., uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, and so also, um, and also many immigrants had left Guangdong, you know, before and, and, and after that period. So there weren't any Wongs left. It was fascinating to think, I'm really interested in the transnational part of the story, of all immigration stories. And, you know, and imagining people in the place where they lived before they came and, you know, what were conditions like, how many people lived there. Um, and so it's also, you know, exceptionally interesting to go back and see the remnant of that, of what that town was like and how many people lived there. And uh, so that's in an epilogue. And that is yeah. my favorite part of the book. I just read that this morning. That is a beautiful okay. part of that book. I Good. really, really enjoyed that. Um, you know, Dr. Beatrice Loftus McKenzie, we're going to be moving out of here in about a minute and a half or two minutes. I want to say thank you. This is a beautiful book, The Wongs of Beloit, Wisconsin, published by University of Wisconsin Press. It's an incredible story. The, the Wong children, and I want to highlight Mary Wong Palmer for her historian role in, 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 in your, being your collaborator, your partner, and bringing you in to create this. Um, and also Harry and Fung, as you're listening today, I want to say thank you to them too. But uh, I just want to say thank you for this book. Thank you for this hour. Thank you for your perspective and, and the power of, of this very personal but very powerful story. Well, it's absolutely been my pleasure, Bert. It's fun to talk to you and to, to talk about the book. And, you know, I'm interested in speaking to community groups or, uh, you know, any other church communities who might be interested in the book and, and hearing more about it. When after 1965, um, when the immigration laws change in this country, um, there are a lot of 
immigrants, immigrant families who need to hear this story of, of that past generation. And, I agree. Uh, I, uh, if I have maybe 20 seconds, I yes. would like to just uh, tell you that my next project, which I'm uh, researching now, is about the immigration of an Italian family to uh, Pullman, Chicago. And I thought I had identified a family, and I'm not sure that I have a family. So if we have any listeners who know of an Italian family that went to Pullman, Chicago, I am still looking for the right family uh, to put at the center of that book. I really love this idea of uh, telling immigration history by telling a biography of a single family so we can really wrap our, our, our heads around how laws affect decisions and how people persist uh, in the face of those laws and, and, and cultural norms and have their families, uh, shape their families and basically shape the future of our nation. Absolutely. I just want to say thank you on behalf of all of our listeners and myself and the folks here at WRT. Thank you so much, Dr. McKenzie. This has been great. We've got. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And we've got Chuck, who's the engineer, who's making all the magic happen in there. He's pushing the buttons, and so you can listen to my voice. You've got Rochelle, who organizes it all, and Shali, who makes it all happen from the top on down. And all of our volunteers and listeners, thank you so much. Um, This is Bert Zipper with Dr. Beatrice McKenzie of Beloit College, and I am saying, have a good week, and hang in there. Thank you. Because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground Another pirate station We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before We bring the sound communication of our tribal war Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight Straight from the base deep down no precision High crime treason we broadcast in sedition Like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions Live and direct we come and never pre-recorded with information that would never be reported disregard the mainstream media distorted we come and listen and supported live and direct we come and never pre-recorded with information that would never be reported disregard the mainstream media distorted we come and listen and support